In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is a reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. <clears throat> I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, your spiritual worship. Do not conform yourselves to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing and perfect. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So last night I spoke about perfection, the call to holiness, and focused on the relationship with God that shows itself to be true, even amidst the seemingly unimportant aspects of human life. And I focused on the call to live this relationship with God in such a way that it produces a yearning for that same relationship with God in the lives of others. And I asked if Jesus were to come to you now and say, come, and say, come follow me, how would you respond? This morning I spoke about courage and asked what, is, what specifically are the difficult yeses and nos that you face today. In what area, large or small, do you need to develop the virtue of courage? In what area of your life have you indeed been courageous? And how did you develop that habit, or how did you develop the character that allowed you to be courageous in that moment or at that time, that way of moving forward despite your fears? This conference will focus on hope. And I'll use a lot of material from Pope Benedict's encyclical, Spe Salvi, in Hope We Are Saved, from 2007. First, I will read a passage from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Have no anxiety at all, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Make your requests known to God. Then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Then the God of peace will be with you. In so many ways, in this passage, but in other, other passages we've looked at these days, it's clear that the life of faith 
is not really about you or me. It's about what God can do in you or me. And we know or we've seen, I'm certain that we know, some holy people. And they are indeed attractive. They're beautiful to behold, even if they're not physically beautiful. But that, in a way, that's precisely because that's not their focus. That's not, it's not their focus to be that way. Now, what drives the hope that we need to have that's required, so to speak? Pope Benedict makes clear that hope is not optimism. Hope is not optimism. I hope things will turn out okay. It's not. Hope is much deeper than that. He says, <coughs> excuse me, hope for eternal life that is founded on faith in Christ is not merely something projected into the distant or obscure future, and hence something that we can persuade ourselves to postpone until we are old and have nothing else to do. It is a present and dynamic reality in our daily lives and must be so if we are to live in such a way as to ultimately realize our hope for everlasting happiness. So it's not optimism about something that might or might not happen in the future. It's confidence now. It's a present reality, the confidence now. The encyclical is quite radical and has some challenges for, I would say challenges for our society, maybe not for a true believer, but some claims that are very significant and very important for our society and for our world and for, frankly, for interreligious conversations. Very significant points that he makes. So for example, and, and let me just preface this by saying, <coughs> excuse me, one of the things he's concerned about is that faith is often perceived to be part of an escape from the world, right? So the, the holy person or the faithful person is sort of above it all and doesn't really care what's happening in the world. It's striking to me that we might have six Catholics on the Supreme Court, right? Isn't that interesting, right? And it would be my hope, and I think I know, Pope Benedict's hope, that their Catholicism would be anything but checked at the door. But that doesn't mean that they're going to, going to impose their faith on their rulings. But we should be happy for people who understand what is really true as they, as they look at the Constitution and look at other things. We're not talking about legislating from the bench, right? We hear about that a lot. We're not talking about that. So, so he, well, among the things he's concerned about is, is that faith has been excluded from conversations about politics, about life, about health care, just to bring it very, make it very practical. And not only is that detrimental to Believers, it's detrimental to society because it's our 
view, our conviction, our, our knowledge, right, that what we're talking about, that the truths of our faith are not simply true for us. They're actually true, period. Now, it doesn't mean all of them are knowable by our human reasoning. Most of them are not, right? A lot is known by our human reasoning, which is why it's a good idea to study philosophy. I recommend that. Uh, a lot of things are knowable by our human reasoning. But it's not good for society or for the world to treat faith, specifically, let's say, Christian faith, Catholic faith, as irrational, as irrelevant to what's happening or what ought to be happening in the culture. So, among the things that are present in this document, truth is not a limit upon freedom, but the condition of freedom reaching the, its true potential. So, the truth that you should not commit adultery. From one perspective, people will say that's a limit on your freedom. You're limited to only this one person for the rest of your life. It shuts down your freedom. That's a distortion. Or rather, I should say, that's an understanding of freedom, which is not the deeper understanding of freedom. Right? So the truth that's present in, in, in our teachings is not a truth that uh, limits our freedom. Now, to, to really appreciate that, though, we have to discipline our inclinations, right? To begin to see, oh, okay, it's a little bit like, maybe a lot like the, the child learning how to write thank you notes, right? It feels like a limitation on his freedom to be writing these thank you notes, right? But it's actually the part of making him more and more free as he becomes a more thankful person, right? So the truth about our human lives, about morality, is not a limit upon freedom, but the condition of freedom reaching its true potential. Second, reason and faith need one another. Faith without reason becomes extremism, while reason without faith leads to despair. Reason without faith leads to despair. I've referred a few times to the elderly in nursing homes. Maybe some of you have visited nursing homes or other facilities. I hate that word, facility, but it's used. Other facilities, and you've seen room after room of people on feeding tubes who almost never get visitors. Now, without some understanding of what life is about, about uh, without some understanding of eternal life, why wouldn't somebody come upon that and say, this is a waste of money? Waste of, a waste of technology. Right? How, how do we... What does reason have to say about that on its own? Well, we have enough money, let's do it. I know silly people are still against euthanasia, so let's, we'll have to do this for now. Right, but what are the, what's the, 
without some deeper understanding of life, what life is all about. I think the same is true for, quote, universal health care, unquote. What are the, why are we bound to care for another um, collection of particles in the universe with no meaning, right? Why are we bound to do that? It's important here to say, and it won't surprise you, it's not reason and any old faith that need one another. Because in, in our view, in my view, many faiths have not had an adequate um, challenge by reason, have not been adequately uh, critically examined by reason. And often, they're, they're not up to the task. I mean, it's, a, it's a much bigger conversation, a longer, longer discourse. But the, the, the concern here is to keep or to, to return faith from some realm of superstition, some realm of, of uh, irrationality. Third, he talks about the dangers of the myth of progress, myth of modern progress. So science, the, the many incredible things that science has given us that uh, uh, in medicine, in travel, in well, so many, in so many areas, we can sort of think that we're just going to keep on, keep on, keeping on and, and maybe be saved or live longer or live forever and replacement parts and we can start thinking that progress is, is, is the way it's going to go. Number four, the impossibility of constructing a just social order without reference to God. Now in our society, this is often um, a, a point of, of dispute. You know, we don't want a theocracy. We don't want um, you to impose your faith on the country. He's after a deeper point. Unless you really grasp the truth about reality, where we came from and where we're headed, the meaning of human life, the dominion of man over creation, unless you understand these truths, what is a just social order? What, what, what is it? How can you be agnostic about those, the answers to those questions and still be convinced that you must care for every single human being, no matter how weak, no matter how tiny? Well, you can't. You can't. And that's why the, he, he, would, he says, the attempts to have a political order without reference to God fail. You may remember that when the, I think it was at the documents of the European Union, when those were being written, there was no reference at all to Christianity. It was so, so crazy. And he's among those who was really challenging the writers of that to say, how could you possibly look at the cultures that have developed here and, and remove any reference to Christianity and, and the importance of that? I, I would like well, I think it's true that so many of the good things we value today 
that even atheists value today rest upon the vestiges of a Christian worldview. Right? Even the notion that we should care for the poor, care for the homeless, um, provide health care for everyone, those are, those are kind of, um, they rest on an understanding of the dignity of the human person and the importance of our, our caring for the human person. But they're not consistent with all of the other positions that the same people seem to hold. And then finally, objective truth is the only real limit to ideology and the blind will to power. We've heard people say, you know, if we can do it, why shouldn't we? Right? If we can clone you and have extra body parts when your heart runs out, why not? Right? What, what would be the reason? Why not? And unless there's some truth about human life, about how we treat human life, there are no limits. And so we see that, and it's in a different sort of way, I think we see that in the, the thought that we can turn this male body into a female body or this female body into a male body because of the claims of the person. But where is the person? Because these same people don't believe in a soul. So what is it that is claiming to be male or female? It's so, it's so confused, right? And we have the technology to do these, these surgeries. Do we have any confidence in the claims that we shouldn't do them? I don't mean to depress you by these, these thoughts, but more to give you hope, right? That, and that your a deeper understanding of these truths should help you, should impel you to enter more deeply into your professions, into your, your neighborhoods, into your relationships. So with hope, the present moment, even if it is difficult, can be lived and accepted if it leads towards a goal. If we can be sure of this goal, and if this goal is great enough to justify the effort of the journey. Right, so, so the, the big goal, so to speak, is eternal life. How do I, how do I, the rich young man, how do I achieve? How do I get to eternal life? Well, follow the commandments. Well, what else? <clears throat> Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, follow me. Why would I do that? Well, because I, I want something. I want a complete life. I want complete fulfillment. I don't settle for, for um, partial happiness. Think of the, the fairy tales. And they lived happily ever after. You know, they don't say, and they lived happily for about 35 years, you know, and then, then they weren't happy anymore. Now, we want happily ever after. We can't help but want ever hap happily ever after. Eternal life. So Pope Benedict asks, what's, what, what sort of hope could ever justify giving everything away? Right? 
What sort of hope could do that? What sort of certainty could do that? I mean, think of those moments when, boy, it sure looks like doing something wrong. Either I got to do it or I want to do it or, you know, what is it that gives you hope, conviction, to, quote, do the right thing? Because that's something that's present to you. It's not optimism, right? It's present to you. And, and many times when you, when you make the right choice in that moment, you immediately feel a sense of relief. Even though you haven't achieved eternal life in that moment, right? But you know, I'm on this journey. I'm on this journey. And that's, when, you, when you think about this, it's also striking to um, call to mind the incredible efforts, the sacrifices, the commitment of people who do not expect eternal life. Think of some of the professions people have. They work long hours and and their horizon is not eternal life. Not, at least not consciously so. I mean, I do think there are many people who live deeply Christian virtues who are not explicitly Christian. I, I, I would want them to be. That's a whole other discussion. Why would you want them to be explicit? Well, you'd want them to understand more deeply why they're doing what they're doing. But there are a lot of people who pour their lives out, and then they die. And they never really thought about why they were doing that. It's just something that, that they, they did. We want to understand better what it is that we're after, so to speak. So he discusses eternal life. You know, what is this eternal life that we don't really know, but that we hope for? And he says, it suggests, eternal suggests the idea of something unending, he says, this frightens us. Life makes us think of the life we know now and that we don't want to lose, even though very often it brings more dissatisfaction than satisfaction, often. But that's not what we really want forever and ever and ever. Right? So, so there's a misunderstanding of what eternal life, the eternal life that is our goal, really is. We sense that eternity, the eternity we long for, the eternal life we long for, is not simply an unending succession of days on the calendar. It's not just this life, but longer. Like, forever. <laughs> it's not that, right? He says, it's something more like the supreme moment of satisfaction in which totality embraces us and we embrace totality. Like plunging into the ocean of infinite love, a moment in which time, the before and after, no longer exists. Plunging into an ocean of infinite love. Now, we will need to, dis to discuss why we have confidence in that. What is it that makes the Christian, the Catholic, confident in that? 
But in the meantime, he, he wants to speak about the world and what's happening in, our, in the world, so to speak, the world's understanding of salvation, of holiness, and of eternal life. He says, we seem to have arrived, the culture, society, arrived at an interpretation of the salvation of the soul that involves a flight from responsibility for the whole. I got to go be holy and find God. Got to go be holy. Sort of a selfish search for salvation, which rejects the idea of serving others. Something that's been on my mind lately, partly because I think I fail at it, is almsgiving. One of the priests with whom I live is really good at giving alms, far more generous than, than I ever think to be, right? Uh, but it's a pretty strong exhortation for us, right? To give alms, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. But there is something that, is, that, is, that has happened to the understanding of the life of faith or pursuing salvation or being saved that's very personal. And he wants us to, to know Christianity is not an escape from the world. It's not an escape from the world. You all have jobs or you had jobs, maybe you're retired now. You've got many practical things to do in the world and you do them as a Catholic as a convinced Catholic. And he looks at, and I sort of referred to this a little bit earlier, what happens when the world assumes that's what's going on with faith people, and they try to build societies. What happens? He looked at the French Revolution as an attempt to establish the rule of reason and freedom as a political reality, and he looks at Marxism. The claim there is that with the fall of political power and the socialization of the means of production, the new Jerusalem would be realized, right? So both involve a sort of a utopia, this world utopia, everything's going to be great, will be ruled by reason. Um, uh, then Marx, get all the, you know, the, the policies right and everything will be smooth, right? Everything will be great. Heaven on earth, so to speak. He says these have been, they are, we've seen them to be futile attempts to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And leave aside for the moment, or don't leave it aside, how many people were killed in the name of reaching that, those utopias, those heaven on earth situations. Now we have our politicians today many of whom speak in the same type of terms. Elect me, and everybody will have enough food, they'll have enough education, they'll have enough health care. It will be, they don't say heaven on earth, but everything will be great. Very much this world, material, re, reorganization, um, people speak of redistribution of wealth, right, so that everybody has everything they need. We can do that, right? We can do that. Now, where does this fail and where does Christianity come in? He says, Marxism, Marx, not only omitted to work out how this new world would be organized, he forgot that man always remains man. <laughs> he forgot man and he forgot man's freedom. He forgot that freedom always remains 
also freedom for evil. He thought that once the economy had been put right, everything would automatically, would be, would automatically be put right. His real error is materialism. Man, in fact, is not merely the product of economic conditions, and it is not possible to redeem him purely from the outside by creating a favorable economic environment. So he goes on to say that we build, our society builds upon the achievements, the technological achievements of those that went before us. So the phones we have, the computers we have, the airplanes we have, I mean, those are built on decades and sometimes centuries of knowledge built up. And we count on that. But we make a mistake if we think that how we use our freedom works that way. It looks like every generation has to relearn it. Every human being has to relearn it. Right? The deep question of how will I use my freedom is my question, is your question. No one else can answer that question for each of us. And, and each of us has the propensity or the, the possibility of, of doing really evil things no matter how virtuous our parents were. Now, yes, the habits of our parents often help us to develop good habits, and that, that can carry on to a degree, but it's not certain. We know that. It's not certain. So we can't depend upon the this world, this world solutions, solutions as it were, to the problems that we face. That's another topic near and dear to his heart that I think is uh, critical for our society. And what I'd like you to reflect on here is the way in which you could, or Catholics in general could, really be helpful to society. Right? We could step back and judge why these politicians want to do this or that. But some of them are like sheep without a shepherd, right? Some of them are pretty bold about their wandering. But I mean, some of them really are, they are, in fact, sheep without a shepherd. And, and we, have, we have some truths that we know and we can defend that we can offer. So let me give you a quote. And this is about the Fort Hood shootings in 2009. You may remember the maybe 13 people were killed, something like that, in the shootings at Fort Hood. So here's the quotation. I want, I want to know what you think about this. It may be hard to comprehend the twisted logic that led to this tragedy, but this much we do know. No faith justifies these murderous and craven acts. No just and loving God looks upon them with favor. For what he has done, we know that the killer will be met with justice in this world and the next. What do you think about that? Is that a politician speaking? Is that a religious leader speaking? Is that Pope Benedict? No faith justifies these murderous and craven acts. No just and loving God looks upon them with favor.
Any idea who said those words? <coughs> President Obama. Now think about that. Some, some things in there you'd say, yeah, he's right about that, but how does he know? No just and loving God looks upon them with favor. Really? Does that God exist? So many secular leaders want to make claims based on truths that they claim to have no access to. That's why I say we can be of help, right? In the Regensburg lecture, Pope Benedict spoke about, wrote about, the, um, he himself said there that God does not justify killing the innocent. Now, he also explained how that can be understood philosophically, how he, can, how he can make that claim about the nature of God based on a good philosophy. And he spoke about the gift of Christianity growing up within a philosophical culture. So he makes a similar claim as President Obama does. But he's resting on something, right? He's resting on something. So what I want to say is that the, our culture wants to make universal claims, wants to make objective claims about, for example, the homeless, the poor, those without health care. They want to make objective claims about what your duties are, my duties are, at the same time that they claim there is no objective truth. And they have nothing on which to, to rest their claims. So this is why I say a an, an proper understanding of faith and reason can be of great assistance to people of goodwill, right, who, who want to hear what you have to say and are willing to change their thinking on some topics in order to embrace the truth that you're bringing out on some other topics that they appreciate. So I'm just going to, to um, I'm going to sum up. I realize we're, we're close to time, and I just I don't want to leave you too much heavy, heavy thinking. Um, why is it that my faith or my, my hope is present now? So when I have faith in Christ and who Christ is, why, why isn't that off in the future? Why isn't it off in the future? It says, Jesus Christ has redeemed us. This is our faith. Through him, we have become certain of God. Certain of God. Our faith gives us a certainty of God. Not a God who is remote, a remote first cause of the world. Like some philosophers have thought, well, there was a first cause, but then he just let the world do what it did. You know. No, the, the God we believe in is here and now, present, present everywhere, not a remote cause. Because his only begotten son has become man, and of him everyone can say, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So yes, there's a, a faith 
component, right? I, I, I've come to know that, that that's who God is. I believe in God, right? We say the creed. I believe, I believe, I believe, and he's not somewhere re remote. He's not some first cause in the past. And his only begotten son died for me, redeemed me. And I know that now. And so that knowing of that now gives me hope. Not simply, well, I hope something happens. I, I, I want something to happen in the future. And because I have that hope now, then that helps me in the moments when the choices are difficult. Right? I, know, I know there's some think, something I've got to do in order to be faithful to that, that God who is redeeming me. I, I know I, I have to. This is what I must do. And so then the moral life then in, involves, okay, well, now how am I going to do that? Because I, maybe I've got to change some of my habits. I've got to make more time for this. I've got to learn how to get up early, learn how to, to write, because I know I'm a, I'm a good thinker and I've got to learn how to write and do all these other things to get to that point. But it's not something off in the future. It's here and now. And that's why we, we, we want to learn to purify our desires. So how can we articulate and exercise this hope? One critical way, of course, is by prayer. And I had a thought as I was preparing for this, and, it, and it's a reference to, or built upon what somebody who, who was commenting on the Pope's encyclical wrote. And he wrote, when, God, when no one else listens to me anymore, God still listens to me. When no one else listens, God still listens. And, and my, or my thought was it's, it's, it's even, even, even deeper than that, right? Um, an actor once said to me, he said, uh, there are two kinds of people in the world. He said, actors and dead people. <laughs> and what he meant by that was, no one can see your soul. No other person can just see all of you right now, right? You are presenting yourself. Your tone of voice, your posture, your smile, your frown, you're always presenting yourself. And this is true for any other human being. This is true with your wife, right? It's true with your children. No matter how long they've known you, no one knows you as well as God does. And so when you're praying to God, you don't have to explain to him why you did what you did two days ago. You don't, you don't have to. It's all there. He knows it already. You want to receive from him what you need to follow and to get to him. So in order to free ourselves from the hidden lies with which we deceive ourselves, we need to talk to God. He knows them. He sees through them. And when we come to him in prayer, we are forced to recognize them. He doesn't force us to change. But when we see, and we see 
the problems with the way we're thinking or acting, that prayer can cultivate a desire to change. Okay, question. What at this moment in your life appears hopeless? What at this moment in your life appears hopeless? I don't know what I'm going to do about this. This relationship, this project. And then secondly, what once felt hopeless and indeed was in the end truly disappointing from one perspective. Maybe you were losing a friendship and you did lose it. You know, you, were, you, were, you lost hope that this friendship was going to last and then it, in fact you lost it. So from one perspective, it was truly disappointing but from another perspective, it's clear that God was guiding everything. What I'm trying to cultivate by that question is an attitude that even in the moment when you see something in your life where you feel like something's hopeless, you retain the words of John Paul and of Christ, don't be afraid or don't worry don't be afraid. Don't. It's not going to add any more years to your life. But it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. You still need to work and pray and enter into the, the, the courageously into the <coughs> decisions you have to make. But to trust that God is at work and to do what you can to be, to be in union with his will for your life and the lives of those over whom you have care. Let us pray. O God of all the living, you called St. Ignatius to offer his life as a living sacrifice of love through the power of Christ's cross. Fill all your people with self-sacrificing love for the gospel. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.